Teslas are everywhere. I mean, it's it's amazing. And these are still expensive cars. My bet is that just free enterprise now is going to drive the cost of vehicles down. That's where the opportunity is going to lie with the automotive industry. So what we need is to take the money and invest it in the infrastructure. That's Dr. David Suzuki, who just drove from Vancouver to Toronto in an electric car. He talks about his journey, the solar and wind generating projects he stopped to see, and what we can do to lessen our carbon footprint. We'll also talk to Todd Malater of Canadian Electric Vehicles about the conversion of gas vehicles to electricity. And Bruce Cameron, columnist for the New Car Dealership Association of BC, about going green with EVs on this edition of Today in BC. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. Bruce Cameron, a Black Press Media columnist who also writes about trends in the New Car Dealership Association magazine, Signals, joins us on Today in BC to chat about electric cars. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Bruce, British Columbia leads North America on adoption of electric vehicles. One in eight are in favor of buying one. Something like 13% of the population have actually purchased one. That's a pretty big number considering in the U.S. less than 1% of cars and trucks are electric. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why BC is such a leader on the environment. The consumers here have both the means and the interest in pursuing these kinds of technologies. And so many of the early adopters in buying EVs were right here in British Columbia, particularly in Vancouver. The provincial government has offered rebates on the purchases of new electric vehicles, which would certainly help drive the consumer interest. Do you think they'll be continued and perhaps extended to some vehicles that are not currently covered? I do believe they will be continued. The industry lobbies very hard for that. And given the very aggressive targets that the B.C. government has set, as much as 60% of all vehicles within the next decade would be electric vehicles. That's a massive target. When you're at 13% now and you want to move it up to 60% within a decade or 15 years, we're going to need a lot of things. You're going to need a lot of incentives. You're going to need a lot of other infrastructure built as well. You touched on it. Vancouver is now considered one of the greenest cities in, in North America. So what goes into that claim? There are a number of factors. They were awarded the designation of the greenest city when it comes to recycling. They've moved up more than any other city in North America, the amount of recycling that they've done. But there's also a lot of other factors going. in. The main one, though, is really that almost all of the energy used in Vancouver comes from hydropower. And it's one of the things that BC has an advantage of over most other jurisdictions in North America, the extensive amount of hydropower that we can use. The transit system mainly runs on green energy, renewable as well as electric. And a lot of the building codes and the building regulations in terms of how you must build and the environmental factors in those things are some of the most stringent in the world. Governments, whether they've been NDP or liberal in BC, have consistently adopted tough environmental policies in terms of moving consumers and businesses in that direction. And that's particularly true in Vancouver, where the city government has been very active in that. Bruce, you mentioned very aggressive targets for switching to electric vehicles. If everybody goes out and buys an electric car, will we have anywhere near the infrastructure to support them, to plug them in, to charge them up? 
No, and that's something that the industry is really pushing for. There have been some pretty aggressive targets set and a lot of money put into it. Just recently, there was uh, $8.5 million. The federal government just announced some money, $400 million across Canada for charging stations. And so there'll be more and more of that because I think people will start to see that you can't have that kind of increase in the percentage of electric vehicles unless you have the infrastructure to support it. I suspect we'll see even more investments by the provincial and the federal governments in building charging stations. One of the things we hear about in Canada and northern BC in particular, that winter is cold enough to impede battery storage capacity for electric vehicles. Is that solved by having a hybrid rather than a full-on electric vehicle, or are some of the problems with battery capacity overstated? I don't think they're overstated. They're definitely there. The uh, hybrid does get around it and that you're obviously using an internal combustion engine in addition to the electric. So the electric in, in most hybrids, the electric engine is really a supplement to the internal combustion engine. And those are, in my mind, really good. If you're doing a lot of driving in a city, you can run on the electric power for most of that time. If you're doing driving between cities, you'll be running on gasoline and, uh, and the internal combustion engine. But when it comes to the cold, the drop is about 20%. There was an extensive study done in Norway, and it showed that the drop in power of an electric battery goes down 20% in extreme cold. And that's actually about the same proportion that the fuel economy goes down in an internal combustion engine in extreme cold. Machines don't like winter, <laughs> generally, just like people. And really, there are pros and cons, but anytime you look at the range, you've got to reduce that a little bit in the winter. Now, fortunately, for most people who live in BC on the coast, we don't get the extreme winters that they do in the rest of Canada. So that isn't as much of a factor. The drop wouldn't be as severe, which is maybe one of the reasons why there's been a higher percentage of adoption of electric vehicles on Vancouver Island than there is almost anywhere else in North America. So the Ballard fuel cell, a BC invention, I understand they found a partner in New Zealand, and you were writing about that recently. Yes, and there's a couple of things going on about that. It's an interesting invention. It holds a lot of potential. They're looking into it in China as well. The Chinese are really exploring the potential for it. In New Zealand, there's a program with Toyota, with the Toyota Mirai, a specific vehicle that runs on hydrogen. One of the things about the hydrogen fuel cell is you need a whole other infrastructure program to build out those stations that can charge the hydrogen. And it's a relatively tricky issue of getting hydrogen it's very explosive so those things can be worked on and they are being worked on and i would not be surprised at all if hydrogen actually starts to supplant some of the electric vehicles as we move forward over the next decade when we have a heat wave we're always hearing about the extra load on the provincial grid uh, do you think we'll be able to produce more electricity are we in any danger of running out of juice no, I don't think so. According to BC Hydro, about 43,000 gigawatts per year is what they're producing for customers here. And they say they have the capacity of over 18,000 megawatts. So that's a thousand times a gigawatt. So we're nowhere near reaching our capacity in terms of the hydro. Most of the hydropower that's generated, it comes from the Columbia Valley and uh, the Columbia River and internally in the Peace River. So once you transport it, say, from 
the northeast areas of BC, you do lose a lot in the transmission of it. So the better we get at storing energy, the better off we're going to be. But that's a fairly long ways off in terms of being able to store that kind of energy. You yourself have been looking to switch to an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle and have test driven a few. Tell us about that. There's lots of us who have never been in either one. What's the first thing we would notice? One of the most eerie things is how silent they are. And you don't realize how much you rely on uh, your senses of hearing in operating a vehicle until there's no sound other than a bit of a whir of maybe the air conditioning in the vehicle. So that takes some getting used to. And actually for pedestrians, they've considered ways in which they can make them have a little bit of sound when they're going down the street. Otherwise, people will step out in front of a vehicle because they can't hear them coming. So that's a bit of a challenge. The hybrid that we drove in, in Vancouver, it was fine. And we went up into the interior of BC. That was more of a challenge when we got there to actually use it in its electric mode. It just points out the reality is that hybrids would mainly be used, I see, as a vehicle to drive around a stop and go in city traffic. And when you're going between cities or on a longer journey, you're going to use the internal combustion engine. It's, it's going to kick in and do most of the work. And, uh, but basically, the idea is that it recharges it. But uh, depending upon the model, there's still a lot of things to be worked out. So I suspect that many people will see a hybrid as not the best of both worlds, but in between both worlds. Not, not the best of pure electric and not the best of pure uh, internal combustion engine. So were there any other factors in comparing vehicles that you were making in order to narrow it down to make a decision? <laughs> oh, there's a lot. Uh, given the price of gasoline right now, you start to look at the overall operating costs of an electric vehicle compared to an internal combustion engine, and it becomes quite a bit more compelling. And perhaps regardless of the incentives that are in place and hopefully will be kept in place to buy new electric vehicles, I think that just the price of gasoline going up will drive a lot of people to really take a closer look at shifting to an electric vehicle. And I think people are realizing that with the targets that are set, it's a matter of time. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when people shift over. And there are a lot more uh, larger vehicles that have a lot more capacity off-road and to haul things that are being produced now. There's a number of trucks and uh, fairly powerful vehicles that are being produced that are electric. And I think that will get people into the electric vehicle mode much more quickly. That's Bruce Cameron, a Black Press Media columnist, and who also writes trends in the new car dealership association of BC magazine, signals. When Today in BC continues, we'll chat with Todd Melitair of Canadian Electric Vehicles, a British Columbia company that has been building and converting vehicles to electric since 1995. We'll also chat with Dr. David Suzuki, who has just completed a Vancouver to Toronto journey in an electric car. Buying a home is an important milestone. Find the right realtor and the right listings for your needs at todayshomebc.com. Powered by Black Press Media. With easy-to-use search filters and direct links to realtors and their websites, you'll get all the information you need to find your perfect home. Search hundreds of local listings and get access to the top real estate professionals to help you find your perfect property. Get started now at todayshomebc.com.
Thanks for joining us today, Todd. Glad to be here. Canadian Electric Vehicles, or CAN-EV, has been building smaller e-trucks and doing conversions for many years now. Could you take us through the growth of the company and some of the products that you have? For sure. CAN-EV was focused primarily on manufacturing the, the Mighty Trucks and the Mighty Tugs. The trucks are used for municipal or fleet operators to support work applications. The Mighty Tugs are most commonly used in hospitals, healthcare facilities for towing linen service carts and food service carts around. So we were focused on the growth of those products up until the pandemic. Then the pandemic came along and shut down municipal budgets for a while. So our sales were reduced in that area and we focused back onto our routes, which is gas to electric vehicle conversions. So we're seeing a lot of uh, renewed interest lately for obvious reasons in those types of conversions. Yeah, the price of gas and maintenance costs of vehicles and whatnot. Yeah. The Mighty E-Truck, is that a registered on the road vehicle? It is. It's a low-speed vehicle, maximum speed 40 kilometers an hour. So in places where the bylaws permit, they can be used on roads posted up to 50 kilometers an hour. I was interested when I took a look at your website to see that uh, CAN-EV has converted more than 70 airport refueling trucks over the years. Why refueling? Those trucks are used exclusively on the airport facility. They don't need to achieve highway speeds. So the conversions are based on a low-speed powertrain. Again, achieve a maximum speed of 40 kilometers. The low-speed conversions are economically attractive to the operators, but they're not only refueling trucks. There's some lavatory trucks and some food service trucks as well that have been converted. Also, I understand your company is currently developing a medium-sized electric truck. We're working on it. Medium-duty truck that's fully road legal is something that we've been asked for many times. The market for a small commercial truck for use in dense downtown urban areas is a niche opportunity with good potential for us. How far along are you with that? We've done a regulatory reviews and we've been successful getting some grant funding to start the engineering and development. We're just working with the University of Victoria right now on, on an, another joint alliance grant. So we'll see if that comes together for us. And if it does, then we'll be able to kick off the project in earnest. With the increased interest in electric cars these days, has there been an increase in the conversion of gas-powered vehicles to electric? Really, 25 years ago, there was strong interest in doing conversions because you couldn't buy an electric vehicle. So at that time, the interest was in lower-cost conversions to convert economy cars, just so that you could have an electric vehicle. At that time, people were satisfied with having 50, 60 kilometers of range for a reasonable price because it got them an electric car. These days, people's expectations are quite a bit higher when it comes to range and performance. So uh, the conversions cost more, but the interest has shifted from those economy cars to classic cars and other special interest vehicles. I wanted to ask you about that in particular, because I know that you've done some muscle cars. I guess there's a lot to be considered when you're doing a conversion, everything from brakes to suspension. The vehicle would need to be in good operating condition after conversion and inspection, similar to ICBC out of province inspection needs to be done to get it registered. So brakes, lights, and all the safety equipment needs to be in good shape. Generally, the brakes don't need to be upgraded necessarily. It depends on the age of the car and a lot of factors. If it has old drum brakes, you may want to, but it's not mandatory. But some adjustment of the suspension might be necessary to compensate for battery weight. When I ran into you last year, you had just converted a Volkswagen Bug. The company has been selling kits for Volkswagen conversions 
and small trucks, I believe, the Ford Ranger. We can really sell a conversion kit or a builder's kit for any vehicle pre-2000 with a manual transmission. The later model vehicles with automatic, electronically controlled automatic transmissions don't really lend themselves well to conversion. The systems are too complicated and getting everything working correctly after conversion can be a real technical challenge. So that's the reason why the classic stuff does work out better. One of the things I noted when you drove away when we had that chat about the Volkswagen Beetle last summer was uh, there was no Beetle sound. <laughs> yeah, certainly. It's much quieter. Absolutely. BC is well known for having lots of classic cars and trucks. And uh, you're keen to help folks convert some of those classic cars to an EV. I know that you've recently done a 69 Camaro. I'll bet that creates a lot of discussion at the local coffee shop with the uh, muscle car owners when they're talking about should I keep it as a muscle car or is it better as an EV? And certainly the conversation changes when fuel's approaching 250 a litre. But we think that there's a, certainly there's a place for muscle cars with their original engines. I don't want to see all muscle cars converted to electric. I think converting some muscle cars, Mustangs, Camaros, that kind of thing makes sense. Maybe not necessarily really rare special edition, more museum or collector piece versions of those cars. Lower trim line, you know, less expensive or less rare versions are great for conversion. Certainly it can lead to the owners of those vehicles enjoying them more, getting out and using them more, because they don't have as many issues with trying to maintain carburetors and ignition systems, stale gas, all those kinds of problems. Fine parts whenever they need them. Yeah. What are some of the other muscle cars that you have done conversions on? We did a 1957 Chevy Bel Air convertible, 32 Ford Deuce Coupe. It's getting to be a classic car, but we just did a conversion on an Acura NSX. Let's talk about the cost of this for a moment. The government is offering rebates for purchases of vehicles. Are they offering a rebate for conversions as well? No, not at this time. However, there's new legislation that's been proposed in California that would offer a rebate for conversions. So that's wasn't expected, but it's really interesting that it's been tabled. If that passes, that might be a good precedent to see if we can get something similar to happen in BC. Could you speak to the battery technology? Because the ins and outs and the parts of all of this, will batteries be developed for use in colder climates? I understand that's one of the drawbacks right now for northern Alberta, for instance, and having an electric truck is that perhaps the capacity of the battery is not 100% in colder weather. Certainly there will be. However, it can be a really long time from the lab to a commercial product. But the motivation is really strong right now with the growth rate on EVs. So there's a lot of funding being steered towards developing battery technology. So I expect we'll see some advances in that. Thermal management of the battery systems can mitigate those issues quite well, though. The uh, batteries are kept warm while it's plugged in and charging. The range reduction issue is not as significant. Where do you see it all going, Todd? They're currently testing unmanned electric self-driving 18-wheeler trucks. Is the sky the limit? Is our imagination the end of the road? Electric power for all vehicle types and all powered mobile equipment will become commonplace before long. Government and climate change policy are the main factors today, but I think economics will begin to really drive it beyond that in the future. Autonomous vehicles have great potential, and I'm certain they'll play a big role someday. Even the sky's not the limit, so we've seen good progress in electric aircraft already. That's Todd Malaterre of Canadian Electric Vehicles. If you'd like more information, head to the website, canev.com. 
Dr. David Suzuki, who is a well-known environmentalist, has long been a champion of wind and solar power to combat climate change. Recently, he and his wife, Tara Collis, traveled from Vancouver to Toronto in an electric car on, as they described, a low-carbon adventure. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Suzuki. Thanks for giving me the time. What was the origin of your trip from Vancouver to Toronto? I'm sure there's a story there. As a journalist and working on the nature of things, it's become very clear over the last few years that flying is gives you one of the heaviest carbon footprints that you can have. A couple of years ago, I said, I can't justify flying anymore. And so I informed the CBC and my boss at the nature of things. I said, I'm just not going to fly anymore to do programs. Zoom has certainly showed that being in the same room to do an interview is no longer necessary. And to their credit, there was a bit of gnashing of teeth, but people accepted that, okay, Suzuki's not flying to do shows. But we're doing a show on geoengineering. You know, this is the idea that we can take carbon out of the atmosphere and stick it in the ground or shield the planet from sunlight. But the leading uh, authority on that is the professor at Harvard. And I did not want to fly to Boston to interview him. So he was coming to Calgary and agreed to meet me. So I took a bus and 15 hours each way. It's not possible to take a bus from Vancouver to Toronto. Greyhound is out of that business. But there is a bus from Vancouver to Calgary. So I got one. And that was very interesting because I think buses going to have to be much more a part of our transportation in Canada. And there are a lot of things that could be done to make it a more enjoyable experience. For one thing, it didn't have a table the way a train does. I had a hell of a lot of work to do on that bus ride. So anyway, that's the setting. So we're doing this play. And when the people said, look, we're in the Illuminato Festival in Toronto, and and we've got a 10-day run of the play. I said to a travel agent, book a train for us. I said, I'm too old to get just an economy seat and have to sit up on the same chair all the way. There's only one scheduled train a week from Vancouver to Toronto. So I said, okay, I can adjust that. But the uh, round-trip fare for my wife and me was over $18,000. Wow. So I said, what? There's no way we, we could afford that. And to cap it all off, the carbon footprint from the train is twice the carbon footprint from an economy class flight. And that's because the train runs on diesel. So, again, you see what's needed now if we're going to get off flying and if we want to use trains as a way to get around the country. Obviously, we have to twin the track with bullet trains that are electrified and um, more, many more scheduled trips. So there's a lot of opportunity. But in the end, I said, the only alternative is to drive. Now, we've got a five-year-old Nissan Leaf, but it only gets 150 kilometers per charge, and there's no way we could ever do it. Fortunately, Luminato, one of their major sponsors, is Volvo. And somehow, Volvo heard that we wanted to drive, and they offered to loan us the C40 model of their electric car. And we took them up on it. And fortunately, two friends of mine, the university professor who's a filmmaker, one of his workers, said, hey, we'll come out. We'll drive and film the whole thing and and make it an interesting road trip. So that's the origins of our trip. 
Vancouver to Toronto in a Volvo C40 electric car, and along the way you're recharging both yourselves and the car, checking out some interesting solar and wind power projects. How long did the trip take you? We could probably do it in comfortably in five days if we're just going Zoom from, you know, one destination to the next. We decided that we wanted to stop and meet people along the way, and that extended it. We took eight days. And even with eight days, there were a couple of days that were quite long where we got in quite late at night. But as, again, as I say, we were stopping and, and filming various things. I think you could do it comfortably in six days. But we took eight, and it has to be planned carefully because this car gets 350 kilometers per charge, big increase over my leaf. You only have to make about two stops before you stay for the night somewhere. But you want to get from a fast charging station to a fast charging station. And that takes a lot of planning. Volvo paid one of their staff to take the time and plot our course from charging station to charging station. That was really an important contribution. We could have done it. It would have taken a lot more time. And so the plan then was to stop at a fast charging station and to charge up to 80%. As a rule, we charge between 80 and 90% before moving on because the charging slows down when you get up around 85% charge. It really starts to slow down. And so if we stop for 40 minutes, we could go to the bathroom and eat something and go for a hike. We could do all those things and then get back in and go. And from that standpoint, it was quite doable So for the most part, was it an incident-free journey as far as the vehicle went? The only real uh, nail-biting time when we thought we are screwed was we were coming up from Brandon to Winnipeg. And the road in Manitoba was just pitted with cracks. And uh, we hit a huge pothole. And the first thing we knew was this loud crash, bang, And we knew immediately we'd blown a tire. When we got out, the tire was torn to shreds. It wasn't just a puncture. So we pulled aside. It turns out that the car, I don't know whether this is a routine for all cars, it had a button that you press and instantly hooked us up to a Volvo communications person, which operates 24 hours a day. So we were now communicating immediately. It was in the evening and discovered, one, modern cars don't carry spares. What they do is they give you a can of compressed air, which has got a sealant in it. So you spray it into your uh, tire, and it seals the, uh, the hole. This tire was just shredded to pieces. So the question is, where can we get a spare tire? There wasn't a spare tire for this car in, anywhere in Manitoba. So we're thinking, there goes our trip, there goes our play, we have to be in Toronto by a certain time. And to my amazement, Volvo got a flatbed truck out of Brandon, picked up the car, and brought it all the way to Winnipeg, which was about 200 kilometers away. But I said, there's no spare tire for this in Manitoba. They pulled a tire off a display model (laughs) of a C40 that was already... A pledge to go to someone else and put it on the car. We didn't miss anything. We ended up coming to uh, Winnipeg and uh, we left the next morning at night. But that was one unexpected thing 
I know a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested with the price of gas spiraling as it is on how much it cost you on your eight-day trip from Vancouver to Toronto for electricity. I think the peak we were charging, say, from 20% back up to 85 or 90%, I think the peak cost was less than $20. And we were charging three times a day. On average, I would say it's around 8 to $10 per charge. Most of the charges that we used were at Petrocan stations. I found it really humorous to watch these cars pulling up, and, and their bills were over $100. And we were getting $8, and away we would go. This is uh, the future. But electric cars are not the solution to the climate crisis. A new electric car, it takes a lot of fossil fuel to extract the minerals that will go into building the car. The manufacturing process takes a lot of energy. All of that is carbon. It's a stopgap. If people are going to buy a car, better an electric car by far. But still, don't think that's the long-term solution. We can't have everybody owning an electric car. We've got to move ourselves in a different way. As I say, if you need a new car, better to get an electric car. And it certainly feels good when you're driving around in an electric car, knowing that you don't have to gas up. I'm interested in your opinion on how the gap is going to be fixed regarding EVs being generally unattainable by the average Canadian. As far as the price goes, is the government going to have to incentivize companies and not just the consumers to bring the prices down? I don't think so, because thanks to Mr. Musk, he drove electric cars onto the public agenda. Now, he started with a high-end, sexy car that sold out right away. And with that money, he was able to build facilities to make cheaper and cheaper cars. Now, you can't look at a major car manufacturer, and they don't have electric. Some leading manufacturers are saying, we're phasing out ICE cars. They're a thing of the past. Musk has brought about the revolution. And with my grandchildren, we're walking the streets of Vancouver. I say, see who can spot a Tesla. Teslas are everywhere. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And these are still expensive cars. My bet is that just free enterprise now is going to drive the cost of vehicles down. That's where the opportunity is going to lie with the automotive industry. So what we need is to take the money and invest it in the infrastructure that gets us towards the fossil fuels free. I don't think that the incentives are needed. We've had incentives in, in BC, and they certainly work. But I think that the market competition now is going to do that job. And it's already happening if you look at the Teslas that have come on ever since the cheaper models. But it's still, for most people, a high-end vehicle. But I think competition with more companies will drive those prices down. As part of your trip from Vancouver to Toronto, you made a few stops to talk to folks who are involved in producing their own electricity. Could you tell us about a few of those projects? We met a, an organic farmer in Saskatchewan. He's got a huge solar array that provides 95% of the electricity for his farm. He's uh, got batteries on his tractor and an old truck. And he's one of the few farmers that has been profitable all through these tough times. And he's a shining example that it can be done by farmers. We visited the Regina, where the city council is pledged to be to totally renewable uh, energy, fossil fuel free by, I don't know, 2035 or something. 
And we met a lot of the young kids, bicyclists, city councilor. They're all in it in a big way. We went to the Kawasas tribe, which is complete. They've got three uh, megawatt uh, solar array, and they're building in another part of their reserve a 10 megawatt solar array. These are huge, huge systems that are going to bring them money. We visited the Henvey Reserve in Ontario. They've got a, quite a large uh, reserve, but they've got over 90 wind turbines, and this will take over 100,000 cars off the road. That's how much electricity they put on the grid. Now, they're going to make a huge amount of money off these wind farms, but they're in their forests, and they're trying to protect that they can put a turbine in without uh, disrupting the, the forest except for a small road. And if there are birds migrating through, they slow the windmills down so they won't kill. So the change is happening, but it's way too late. We need this being done on a massive scale. And this comes in the wake of the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, saying two weeks ago that any further investment in fossil fuel infrastructure is, in his words, moral and economic madness. There's an opportunity. Invest that money in all of the renewable opportunities. We need fast-charging stations as common in Canada as gas stations. This is the future. We need to twin the railroad and have bullet trains across the country run by electricity. We need a new electric grid to make this all possible. That's what we've got to be investing in. The most common question I'm asked by people is, look, what can I do that will really help to make a difference? And fortunately, there is a group in England that called JUMP that has come out with the six really effective ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint involving clothing and food and so on. But transportation is another one. And in, in terms of airfare, they say if you're going to take a short-haul flight, I guess that would be Vancouver to, to Calgary or Toronto to Montreal, take one air flight every three years. And if you're going on a long-haul flight, say from Vancouver to Toronto or Toronto to London, one every eight years. In other words, they're saying you can't just jump on a plane and fly anywhere now. That, In terms of a carbon-constrained world, that's simply not on. We can't keep doing that. A few months ago, the David Suzuki Foundation, alongside Clean Power Pathways, released a report detailing a transition to a zero-emission future for Canada by 2035. Can you give us an overview of that report? It is a three-year study to say, look, with the technology that we've got and a major commitment, is it possible to get to a clean energy future? Is it possible to have a grid that is fed completely by clean, renewable energy that is solar, wind, geothermal, that has the proper storage of energy and the proper sharing distribution of that energy? Is it possible? And what the study showed after three years of, of work and a lot of research done together with the University of Victoria is that it is possible to achieve by 2035. So we can reach a very big target. But what it takes is the commitment. We've got to say, this is what we've got to do. We've got no choice. I'd like to thank Dr. David Suzuki. 
Todd Malater of Canadian Electric Vehicles, and Bruce Cameron for being with us on this edition of Today in BC as we talk electric cars. If you have suggestions or comments, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Mm-hmm.